Hello again, everyone, and welcome to the third chapter of the Method to the Mythos podcast. I'm your host, Max. And I'm your host, Tom. Get your grimoires out, because we're about to delve into a magical world. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the flow of the conversation. From the discovery of fire, to the establishment of civilization, the beginning of philosophy, to the peak of modern technology, we've reached the future, but now that we're here, where do we go? And moreover, how can we use the lessons of our past to better understand the present? The potential is limitless, and we are the means. We are the method to the mythos. All right, Tom, we've got another great episode for everyone here. I know that this episode is right up your alley. Um, Since we started talking again at the end of last year, this is one of the topics that has been most certainly at the top of your passion pool every time that we talk about any topic. So I'm really excited to hear your input on this. And I think it's going to be a nice exchange because I was kind of going off in the second episode due to the fact that it aligned with a lot of my passion points. So really, really pumped to hear a little bit more about the topic of magic and what it is, not just what it is to you and the community that you're involved with, but what it is to everyone. So yeah, for everybody who's listening, this is going to be a bit of a a unique episode. Just make sure you keep an open mind as we go into this, because we're going to be talking about some stuff that isn't very well talked about in the modern day mainstream society. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that's really underdeveloped. No one's really talking about magic in the mainstream. It appears in the mainstream, but in very subtle ways. And since I've started getting involved in magic and the magic community, my life has changed in so many infinitely wonderful ways. It's something that, as you mentioned, it's at the top of my discussions all the time because it's one of the biggest parts of my life. And I think a really good way to start this episode off is to get your opinion on what magic is, because it's it's hard to describe to someone who's not practicing it. And having talked to you about it for so long, I know you have a pretty good understanding of what it is for a layperson. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I'm a uh, practitioner of it in my own unique way as well. So I think that I've been involved with it and always kind of been always kind of been somebody who is passionate about it, but just not to the same terms or in in the same community as you are. So okay, let me let me do my best here. The the way that I would look at magic, it's like this incredible phenomenon that's always been present in existence. It moves the world in ways that we can't always see with our eyes, but rather in our minds. Some associate this with the force of God or other divine entities having influence in the world. Some refer to it as our deeply rooted connection with fate or destiny. But ultimately, I believe that the concept that we're referring to is magic, which can be referred to in many different ways, depending on who you're talking to and what their belief structure is, that it's an essential force and it is linked to the very origins of the universe. It's the untouchable yet fully tangible element of existence that connects us to our higher selves, no matter what our belief system is. And this is a, so this is actually a a phrase that I use quite a bit. I know, Tom, you've been hearing me say this for so long, ever since I started to try and put together these intangible facts of spirituality and reality. But the way I look at this, um, and it's possibly a good way for other people to look at it, is it is the action which creates and influences the reaction in which we call life. And it will either control us or allow us to control ourselves and the world outside of ourselves in ways we never thought possible. You know, for a lay person who who isn't actively engaged in ceremonial magic in the Western esoteric sense, but is engaging with magic in 
your own personal way. I think you've described it perfectly. It's it's very Newtonian when you break it down. Every action has a reaction. And how we engage with ourselves affects how the world engages with us. And I think that you did just a phenomenal job explaining it in a way that just boils it down to its pure essence. And to kind of delve in a little bit deeper on the Western esoteric side, it's important to clarify what it is that we're saying when talking about magic. When we say magic, we're spelling it with a K, and that differentiates it from stage tricks and illusions to the spiritual tradition of ceremonial magic. There are so many misconceptions surrounding spiritual traditions across the spectrum, and magic is no stranger to these misconceptions. During the Middle Ages, these misconceptions resulted in a high level of secrecy by people who practiced ceremonial magic, and a tremendous amount of history was subsequently preserved through Renaissance art. When you look at artwork from, it doesn't really matter what culture it is, it's designed to preserve the teachings of the past in a very subtle way. It's not overt, it's very esoteric versus exoteric. And as societies became increasingly lax towards spiritual practices, particularly in the 20th century, we're beginning to see this huge revival in occult and pagan traditions. And before people get freaked out about the term occult, what occult means is it's what is hidden. And so it's just the unknown, essentially. You know, one of the things that Crowley would say was that the only unforgivable sin is the active renunciation of truth. If you are presented with something that is factual and you can't move forward with it, you're not engaging with the world properly. You need to be open to expanding yourself in whatever way presents itself, right? Whether it's scientific, spiritual, this, you have to be open to these experiences. And if I was to boil down what ceremonial magic is to its essence, it is the act of situating yourself in alignment with the flow of the universe. Yeah, I think that that is a extremely valid point to bring up is that when it comes down to magic, no matter how you want to associate it with a set of beliefs, though I do believe that it is um, it is necessary to actually understand or at bare minimum respect the origins of where it came from as a study and as a practice, that it has this universal concept to it. It can be universally applied. And I like that you talk about it from that point of view, because I've always been a kind of person who is fascinated with universal existence and universal structure in general. So for me, when I start to look at magic, I, I get this idea of a universal energy and it all makes sense to me. But I think a lot of people, when they think about magic or as you mentioned with the occult, you know, a lot of people have this um, this misunderstanding of it or this image in their mind that doesn't accurately reflect it. And it creates a lot of stigmas. You know, the spiritual practices that I see you enact on a regular basis, they're beautiful and they really make you a wonderful person. Because I know you're you're somebody who has a heart of gold, like where I might be a valuable brain. You, by all means, are the most valuable heart that I've ever met. So I would never associate what you do with anything negative or evil. And I think that a lot of people, just based off of the words that are used, have that image come to mind because these stigmas have been created through a lot of the times the mainstream organized religions and how they look at some of the symbology or some of the um, iconography that is associated with the practice. So Tom, why don't you bring up a little bit of that? Because I think it is really important that we address that before we go too deep into the history and the nitty gritty of it, like you mentioned, um, just so that we can make sure that people have as open a mind or as best an understanding of what we're talking about. I agree 100%. And we could spend an entire career talking about the correspondences and the links between traditions from past to present and how things have gotten to the point that they're at. But for the simplicity's sake of the podcast, what we're going to focus on is what exactly magic is and demystifying the stigma surrounding it. 
there's just been so many that have cropped up because they've got these preconceived notions of what these words mean. So when they hear things like pentagram, they think devil. When they hear things like occult, they think satanic. And they just, they make these automatic leaps to things without fully knowing or understanding how these spiritual traditions enact themselves. Because when you get into it, as you mentioned, they're quite beautiful. And there's beauty in all spiritual traditions, and there's a little bit of ugliness in all spiritual traditions. And it's about discerning between the beauty and the ugly. And I think that's such a critical thing when going down the spiritual path is being able to discern these negatives from the positives or integrating the negatives when you need the negatives and integrating the positives when you need the positives in the proper way and becoming a more balanced person because of it. But before we get into the history of it, let's talk about what magic isn't. First and foremost, it's not satanic. In magic, the duality of good and evil are inseparable, and you cannot have one without the other. Satanism, on the other hand, essentially is a pendulum shift from God being all-powerful to the devil. And when I say God, I'm referring to the Abrahamic God. These religious institutions have always been hypercritical of people who live outside of the confines of their particular dogmas. And ceremonial magicians actively strive towards becoming completely sovereign over themselves in every aspect imaginable, which has resulted in some seriously bloody incidences throughout history, such as the Inquisition. Like People literally burnt alive for having differing beliefs. In the modern age, magicians continue to experience undue persecution, and it can be summed up in the modern term of the satanic panic. And there have been so many people who who have been swept up into it unduly and they just they point the finger at that which they don't understand or they point the finger at someone who is clearly mentally ill and isn't actively engaging in these traditions but is appropriating elements of them and it creates this panic and this fervor amongst people which is completely undue and it results in the amplification of suffering for people who are genuinely good people and are practicing these traditions. And to fully understand the satanic panic, we need to establish what exactly we mean when we say Satan or Satanism. In the modern context, Satanism is broken into two schools of thought. One is theistic Satanism, where they believe the devil is the supreme ruler of the universe, and philosophical Satanism, which distances itself from the theistic side and focuses on the philosophical aspects of Satanism, both of which are incredibly modern concepts. In online occult communities, the big joke is is that Anton LaVey, the founder of the Church of Satan, his his brand, his particular brand of spirituality is essentially Anne Rind with candles, which is just, it's that so like me first attitude and I'm just going to burn some candles in the background and it's a bit of a joke. But in a historic concept, Satanism was used as a blanket term to otherize traditions that were outside of Christianity. And this is an incredibly dangerous way of looking at spiritual traditions because the use of hateful and derogatory language towards differing traditions creates divisions and it leads to religious and cultural persecution, trauma, and the amplification of suffering. You know, I think you bring up a really valid point, Tom, because it's not just applicable to the relationship between magic, Satanism, and Christianity, or, you know, what is outside of the established and organized religion of Christianity, but can be applied to many different religions. And the fact that when you are outside of the majority belief 
whether it be religious, cultural, regional, you end up getting these blanket statements to just cover and ostracize that different belief structure that exists within that society. And, you know, to actually flip it around a little bit and talk about the Christians themselves actually being villainized, I want to bring up an example of Christianity in near ancient Japan. And this actually happened quite recently when you think about the long-standing history that we have thousands of years, if not in some cultures even more, to refer back to. But when Christianity first made its way to Japan, it was due to the Spanish influence. And actually, Xavier had come over and he was trying to expand Christianity after a sudden and unexpected docking on the shores of Japan, where the entire society was then brought to the light of the Spanish Empire, which at the time was probably one of, if not even to this day, um, one of the most powerful empires to ever exist in human history. And they had decided, of course, having their Christianity being the strongest point of their their order and of their structure, they brought it over and they wanted to try and assimilate Japanese people into the Christian order. Well, I'm sure you can imagine if you know anything about ancient Japan is that that is a very, very tall order. But from the Japanese point of view, a lot of what was being done was actually being more tolerated than it was accepted by the ruling class. The ruling class having Nobunaga being one of the most famous to be accepting of the Christians, he would accept them as more of a trade partner who did not infringe on the structure of society, along with a slight interest in their beliefs, rather than he did fully accepting of Christianity itself. So there was always a little bit of dissonance between acceptance and just tolerance, and the moment the Christian influence started to jeopardize that in any way, it didn't matter about trade. Now it became a very serious issue, and the Japanese themselves took a much harder standpoint. And there was even some atrocities that went on. I'm not going to say that, you know, I don't want to go into too, too much detail because I could spend a long time talking about things like the 26 martyrs. Um, I'll leave a link down in the descriptions that if anybody is interested about learning more, go ahead and read it up. It's actually quite interesting. And it does flip the tables. You know, we read a lot of history about the persecution that comes from the Christian religion because they were a very strong religion that spread all around the world. But it did go both ways. And in this case, it very much was against the Christians being the villainized ones. So to make a long story short, because I don't want to go on a really big tangent, there were so many different blanket statements put out to actually describe the Christians living in Japan, even among the Japanese themselves whether it was Western devils, whether it was just people who were actually known to have elementary levels of spiritual capacity because they could not understand the depth of Shintoism and Buddhism. You know, there was so many different ways that they looked at this and they didn't, they didn't understand it. And then that led to them not respecting it and actually disassociating or putting these negative associations with the beliefs themselves. So I wanted to just put that out there because I know, you know, from the point of magic, there was a lot of ostracization and villainization from the Christian religion, but it does go both ways and it can be applied to so many different beliefs, even outside of religion. I think we can apply this to absolutely any type of belief structure and when it comes into contact with another, because people will just use what they have in their mind and what they have experienced living their lives to understand something that they don't put the effort in to actually understand. And that, and a lot of times, is going to create things such as, we said, the stigmas. It will start to develop derogatory terms and all sorts of different labels and otherizings of just something that is beautiful in its own right, but from the point of view of something that is outside of their belief structure or doesn't actually speak directly to their traditions, just gets completely blanketed over and given a very negative outlook. 
So, Tom, I know when it comes down to magic, there's a lot more to talk about when it comes down to derogatory and labelization. So why don't you jump back a little bit into it and then tell us a little bit more about magic itself and, of course, the history and the relations focused around that. Most definitely. And, you know, the topic of hidden Christians in Japan has actually been a big interest of mine for years, as, as well as yours. Uh, one of the shows we bonded over during high school was Samurai Champloo, which is about hidden Christianity in Japan. Now, the series is a little bit loosey-goosey with its historical accuracy. It's like some events happen in the 1600s, but also happen in the 1800s. And it's just like, it's a little loose, but it's a phenomenal series regardless. And I think one of the biggest issues that Christianity faced is that it gave people an allegiance to an entity that was outside of the nation of Japan. And so there would be this group of people within Japan living underneath shogunate rule who would be pushing their energies towards the Pope and Rome. And that became an issue within Japanese society, which is why they ostracized them so much, which resulted in these really cool syncretisms between religious traditions, where you've got hidden Christians adopting Buddhist and Shinto iconography and merging them together to help supplement their true belief, which is Christianity. And the biggest example I can think of is the uh, Marie Kanon idol, which is a, a statue of what would be a Buddhist entity, but they overlay Mary and Jesus on top of it. And so even though it's a Buddhist icon, the energy that they're focusing behind it is towards the Christian deity. And it's, it's so cool when you see how these religious traditions expand and evolve. The thing about Christian persecution and magic is, is that there's always been this tenuous relationship. And the person who I've been learning magic from, one of the books that he uses to teach magic to people more than anything is the Bible. And when you start reading it from a magical perspective, the book is just jam-packed full of esoteric wisdom that just flies over everyone's head. And I think the biggest issue with the Bible in the modern day, which leads into things like the Satanic Panic, is that these books were never meant to be disseminated out to the masses as they were today. Because only very recently in history has literacy become an active thing in society, and it results in this large misunderstandings of what religious traditions and what these sayings are trying to get to people. And this is how you end up with people believing that the world is the way that it is because of a talking snake, which is clearly not the case. It's clear that that didn't happen. It's just these are all allegorical stories that have been misunderstood and maligned by people both on the religious spectrum and the non-religious spectrum. But what I find really interesting about the hidden Christian experience and the ceremonial magician's experience in terms of persecution is that regardless of where people live geographically, they're incredibly quick to label anything they don't understand in a negative light, especially systems of belief that contradict or undermine the dominant religious institutions within that given geographical location. This way of thinking and interacting with people is unhealthy, and the best way to dispel these attitudes is by expanding your social circles, as I mentioned in the last episode. Talk to people far and wide and learn about their beliefs, even if you disagree with them. At the end of the day, people are just looking for community, and attacking people in any regard is the best way to further societal divisions across the spectrum. I agree, and I speak from a dominant belief structure that applies similar practices to what you do. So I'm definitely speaking from experience here when I say that, you know, I'm a business person. I handle business at an executive and ownership level, and I see magic 
all the time. I see religious beliefs being perpetuated through the business practices and business models or visions and values all the time as well. And this is a form of communicating this and a form of practicing this that isn't just accepted, but it's idolized by people. And as such, you have people who are extremely committed and aligned with their practices, whether it be spiritual, magical, religious, and you have them just being put up on a pedestal. And they are seen as, you know, the highlight. Everybody wants to be like them. But then on the flip side, when you take somebody who might not be a professional businessman and they're doing the exact same practices, maybe not the same color, it might be a few different details, but it is very much the same process to have similar results, all of a sudden it becomes, you know, a little bit more taboo or it becomes a little bit less admired and accepted or understood. And this is a really big thing because when we talk about society dividing based on the ways that they take the majority belief structure and they use that to weigh against the minority belief structures, which could have similar, if not more substantial value, it, it really does affect us in a negative way. So I actually think that it's got to be the people who exist within the majority expanding on the minority beliefs and how these different practices are similar. And there's so many parallels between them. Because if you have the people outside of it trying to do it, it's just so hard to break through that gate. But the people inside, myself being one of these people, it's actually one of the things I like to pride myself on, is that when I communicate with somebody in business who is potentially very successful based off of these practices and rituals, or possibly idolizing and pursuing that kind of lifestyle, I make sure that they know Look, there isn't a linear path to this. And there's also many different aspects that you have to accept and understand and look at as you go this route, because we cannot have people looking at things from a tunnel point of view, where all they see is just the result of it. They see the way that it is designed. They see the color of the light. And that's all that matters, because there is an entire path to get there. And there are multiple paths to get there. So one of the things I wanted to touch on because we're talking about magic and I bring up the business side of it is I told you guys it's very similar, but how is it similar? Well, let me go into a little bit more detail before you jump into your side of magic here, Tom. Being in business, one of the things that I see is, of course, this will usually end up taking shape in a very religious structure. But regardless of the fact, you have people who are going out and they are manifesting their intent, whether it be personal or professional objective, they manifest it into the world and it develops in the most unbelievable ways. You get incredible results, whether it be individually, whether it be more globally. You know, there are some people out there. One of the ones from my childhood that always stood out to me was Akon. I mean, Akon was a musician. He was a rapper. And that man has impacted and changed the lives of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, because he went out and he used his business potential and his capacity to go and have this kind of impact on the world. That is admirable. I love that. We have people who are just doing it small scale too. One of my business partners is an incredible man. I respect him so, so much. And I've seen him do things that are as simple as going into a shop and asking the people who are working late at night in a really cold time of the year, if they were cold and they wanted a coffee, he brought them back coffee. And I remember when we walked out of that shop, he looked at me and said, every person who goes in there from this point onward is going to get the best ice cream they ever tasted in their life. And it just made me smile because it's not always the big things. Sometimes it's the small things. But ultimately what it is, is it's you using your beliefs and putting your intent out into the world to manifest results. But if you were ever to use the traditional association of the word magic 
to try and describe this. You would seldom, if ever, find business people referring to it that way. In my experience, as I mentioned, it's mostly people who live magical lives in a religious point of view, and they align themselves almost entirely with God to the point where their ability to manifest their intent in the world, it's just second nature to them. Everything they touch, all of the words that they speak, they just, they hit with the power of their spirit and they, their passion, and you feel it. You feel every bit of it. But when you look at the rituals and you look at the way that they're trying to make this happen, it's by making sure that you have this unrelenting spiritual belief towards what you're doing. It's making sure that you wake up in the morning and you enact the right rituals to have your mind, your body, and your soul in the position and capable of doing what you needed to do throughout the day. And then the biggest thing, more than anything, whether it be religious or just generally professional, it's all about this effective visualization and manifesting intent. So this, as far as I know from speaking with you, Tom, are some of the biggest points of magic and how you see results of magic in your practice. And funny enough, it's also some of the biggest points of business, whether you want to associate it with magic or not, from my experience. You know, it doesn't surprise me in the slightest that the people that you see in the business world who can enact this kind of manifestation are engaging in religion. Because people practice spirituality to bring themselves closer to what is commonly referred to as God. And whatever term you want to slap on it, whether it's God, source, the universe, or whatever it may be, the end goal is to bring oneself into perfect union and equilibrium with this force. And magic is just one of the many spiritual paths people can choose to walk. Because spirituality is a spectrum, and what works for some doesn't necessarily work for all. And the truly beautiful thing about the technology we have access to is that for the first time in human history, we're no longer limited to the systems of belief that are dominant in whatever part of the world you're living in. We can explore things like Buddhism, Taoism, Shintoism, Hinduism, whereas our ancestors were not as privileged, and we're often pigeonholed into specific spiritual experiences, whereas now we have access to the whole world, and our futures are so much more brighter because of it. Yeah, for sure. I am a prime example of this once again here because I have grown up in a family that primarily practiced religion from a more Christian point of view. Uh, a lot of my background being from my grandparents, it's more it's more focused on Christianity. And I personally, whether it be the fact that I had limited interaction with my family for a multitude of different reasons, or if it was just due to the fact that I was just born a lot more stubborn and independent, who knows? But I chose to develop a form of spiritual beliefs and a spiritual practice in my life that was completely outside of my family. There was little to no impact that my family's beliefs had on me. And I think one of the big reasons of that is because technology, you know, the media and everything that I involved myself with was what helped me develop my specific form of spiritual practice. And I always thought it was funny because I went through a lot of my life actually having a negative outlook on the spiritual and religious beliefs of my family. So I wasn't atheist by any means, but I was more, you know, antithetical to their focus and their association with God. But it did actually allow me to go out and independently explore my spirituality and develop it as such. So I think that it is a very beautiful thing that at this point in time, you could have somebody who possibly was born into Hinduism and has, for whatever reason, through whatever medium, come across Christianity and realized, hey, this is really beautiful. It really speaks to me. I want to pursue this belief and I want to understand God through this form of, of structure and this form of culture. Or flip it around. You could have a Christian that comes across Buddhism or Taoism and goes, wow, this is what speaks to me. 
This is exactly what I've been looking for. This is how I look at life. And I think that that's amazing because the human mind and the human body are there. They work in the same motion here. So what afflicts the body will afflict the mind and vice versa. So the fact that we are born from our family and our family has lived potentially for thousands of years with similar beliefs and a similar religion. Yeah, it might have an effect on us, but overall, we are our own soul and our soul may attribute to or may align with something that doesn't specifically come from our body and our roots and our DNA. And I think it's really important because you could have people who bring about the greatest of innovations in a specific focus or a specific study of religion who normally, you know, hundreds of years ago would have never had the opportunity to become involved in it. And that's a beautiful thing. It really is. Speaking of that, Tom, you mentioned that, you know, this is something new. This is something modern. But I do think that the past is very important, hence method to the mythos, right? So why don't you give us a little bit of a breakdown or just a summary of the history of magic? Because I myself, I'm very interested in this. I know you've given me little snippets here and there, um, especially about a lot more on modern magic, which I find fascinating because, I mean, I'm practicing it (laughs) in my own way. But I'd like to hear a little bit more about, you know, Modern magic, some of the big names in it, and then also a little bit more about the history, because I am incredibly intrigued to know more about magic and understand it and respect it more as a result. Yeah, well, as I mentioned before, because spirituality has become much more acceptable in the modern age, we've seen an increase in documented history throughout the occult sphere. And magical practices are going to look a little different for everyone, but generally speaking, the rituals used by modern magicians and witches find their roots in the Victorian secret society, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. The order existed for roughly 14 years, from 1886 to 1900, and it was founded by Dr. William Westcott, S.L. McGregor Mathers, and William Robert Woodman. The biggest issue within the lodge setting, such as the Golden Dawn, is that people's egos end up getting in the way of spiritual development and infighting grows between members. This is the primary reason the order dissolved and then splintered into three offshoots, the most important of the three being Stella Matutina. And I apologize if I've mispronounced that. I've only read the word personally, and so it's kind of up to phonetics there. But the reason for this is because It's member Israel Regardi, who in the late 1930s broke oath and revealed the secrets of the order by publishing what is commonly referred to as the Black Brick. It's this massive text with rituals and the procedures of the Golden Dawn. Even the book itself is not a complete rendition of the the workings of the Golden Dawn. It's just the introduction to it, because the, the orders that house these traditions were starting to become very stagnant, and the traditions were just starting to fall away to the annex of history. And Israel Regarde broke oath because he recognized that these spiritual practices were incredibly close to being lost forever. So he made the decision to break oath, preserve, and release the teachings of the order as it belonged to humanity. And keeping it hidden from the world would guarantee its loss. That was such a critical moment for Israel Regarde because when you're in that lodge and order setting, the idea of breaking oath is it's condemnable. And so he made that conscious decision to to go against the grain so that we as modern occultists and ceremonial magicians uh, benefit. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you know what, actually, to mention on that point, um, I, first off, actually, I want to say, Tom, it, 
learning a little bit more about the history of magic, you know, it, it's helped me develop a little bit of a better image. Now, I know that that was just a brief explanation overall. And honestly, you could, as you said, you know, you could go into it very, very deep and take up an entire episode, probably. But I think that the fact of being able to preserve and perpetuate these practices and just this knowledge in general um, through literature is it's such a substantial part of a lot of these spiritual practices and these beliefs that we've developed over thousands of years. And there's a lot of value in what he did, although at the time it was probably such an insane decision to think of, you know, that has brought magic to the modern day. And personally speaking, from what you've told me already, you know, there, there's a lot of benefit to this. Like, one of the things that ended up happening in my mind as I started to understand and listen to you is that, you know, the boundaries of disassociation between one's spiritual practice and my own, they really started to kind of dissolve away. And I think it's because of the, the more universal approach that at least your spiritual practice, and I would like to say my own, but, you know, just in a, in a bit of a different color, so to speak. But I think that those are such, such substantial points that people would not have had otherwise to read, understand, and then relate to themselves and their own spiritual development. And I think that it's such an incredible thing that not in just this case, but in many different cases, we have had people go against the norm or go against the secrecy of a practice to bring it out and actually expand it to a larger audience and help people to to go and develop it further. Because you could just imagine where it was then and where it's going to be in the future are two completely different things. And it's incredible to think about. But if it had stopped at that point, oh, it would have just been, it would have been heartbreaking. It really would have been. And this speaks very highly to me as somebody who practices the sword. You know, for me in particular, I, it's kind of unusual that my spiritual practice is the way of the sword. Most people in the modern day have actually completely disregarded anything to do with the spiritual practice of being a swordsman or a samurai, because when you look at it for its substantial physical real world value, it's just not there, right? It's hard to tangibly understand what the value of it is when we have all this advanced technology and just everything else like weaponry. Now, you could not bring a sword to a modern conflict of any sorts. It just <laughs> people would look at you like you're crazy. Like maybe you could wear one as a, as a decoration, but it's not going to do anything. But that's not what it's about. You know, it's about the spiritual practice. And it's really damaging to the human spirit when we have these practices that have developed over thousands of years of people understanding themselves and looking deeper into their spirit and, and perpetuating that forward with these rituals and these practices that are so significant, even in the modern day. And whatever it might be that ends up bringing that practice to an end, it's you know, it's really sad. It's it's so disappointing to think about because the impact that it could have on the modern day is it's priceless. It really is. But to talk about the books in particular, because they're such a big part. I mean, I would actually say media in general, especially in the modern day, because we interact with forms of media so much differently than people did hundreds of years ago, because, you know, different kinds of movie productions, all these different forms of music or even just videos online that we're able to watch. That wasn't possible. So I think books were the primary source of gaining that knowledge and interacting with it. But now it's changed. So I'm going to say media in general. You know, I when I was growing up, I was I was brought up in a family that was primarily Christian. I didn't really identify with that religious outlook or that organization of belief. And I ended up looking elsewhere and finding my particular practice that spoke to me through the media I interacted with, such as anime. You know, I was a kid. I liked my anime. I enjoyed like 
Naruto, Dragon Ball, um, Ronin Kenshin, once I got a little bit older and could watch something to that degree. But it's more than that. Actually, the biggest thing for me is the books. And I think that that speaks volumes to say that even in a world as advanced as ours, where media is the primary form of interacting with different forms of, of thought communication on a grander scale, that books still have this really strong spiritual significance. Because I would say that the main points that drew me into choosing the way of the sword as my practice were books and novels, graphic novels to be in particular. One that stands to both you and I as a really significant part of our childhood was the Usagi Yojimbo series. That one was, oh, that was a fantastic series. And, you know, a lot of people don't realize, but that story actually paid homage quite heavily to the character of Miyamoto Musashi. And for anyone who is into graphic novels, if you have not read Vagabond yet, I highly suggest it. It has won awards across the board for many years. It is an absolute icon of Japanese graphic novel history. It talks about the story of Miyamoto Musashi as well. So if any of you guys are interested, you know, you have a little thing for swords and you might think it might grow into a little bit more, go and check it out. And then, of course, if we're talking about Musashi, we have to talk about Yoshikawa Sensei's book itself, which is Musashi. Probably the most, I'm not going to say accurate because there is a little bit of, you know, embellishment to make the story a little bit more interesting, but one of the most accurate representations of the events that happened in Miyamoto Musashi's life and even just ancient Japan. There is a lot of what the Japanese would call authentic representation of the history. So for anybody who does want to see a little bit more or read a little bit more into Japanese history, I highly recommend that book as well. But all of these books, you know, the comparable with this is that the spiritual traditions of the swordsman survived in the modern day because of all of this. And anybody who comes into contact with it and wants to learn more has to go out and pursue it. That pays homage to a lot of different spiritual practices that aren't the mainstream marketed organized religions and beliefs that are out there is that you will be subtly influenced or you will have these subtle opportunities from the interactions you have with different forms of media or literature, whatever it might be. And you then have to make a conscious decision to go and pursue it. And although there is a little bit of like a secrecy arcane factor to that, and I enjoy it, it intrigues me. It does also speak to the fact that these traditions need to be maintained by those of us who are involved with them heavily. I myself believe that it is a responsibility of mine to take my teachings and my learnings from following the way of the sword and making sure that I then perpetuate them forward into the future so that they are not lost. And I think that the way of the sword, just speaking from my own point of view, is so significant in the modern day because we're currently in a time where, and I don't want to step on any toes when I say this, but we're plagued with a lot of psychological sickness. And a lot of people are quite literally trapped in overwhelming victim mentalities. And this can be not in all cases, but in a lot of cases, it can be addressed and resolved with the remedies of the spiritual practice that is the swordsman, the samurai way. I don't need to go off on a big tangent about, you know, how I feel my spiritual practice could be a benefit to the world, because I think everybody has that kind of realization. I mean, if if you didn't, then you might be in the wrong spiritual practice because you should be practicing something spiritually that 
makes you feel like there's a substantial benefit for this being in the world and in your life. But Tom, I talked about books. Now, when it comes to books, you are no stranger to books. You and I actually uh, connect and we see eye to eye on so many things, but books is probably one of the strongest ones. There has been some adventures that are very exclusive in the world of literature that both you and I have gone on. And I know that's a point where we connect on a really deep level. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the books that have had big influences on you or not just books, but media in general, because I think your story is really substantial and it speaks to why you are practicing magic. Oh yeah, books are such a huge part of my life. They litter my house. I've got stacks of them on any surface that I can find. And it's because reading is my life. And it has been since I was young enough to actively start going out to the library and finding stuff. And one of those first series that I found was Yusagi Ojimbo. It's one of those magic stories that just, it paints such a vivid picture of what Japanese culture is in such a child-friendly format that it just, it makes you want to explore more and engage with just learning as a whole. That is just a beautiful thing. And I love that books invoke that emotion out of people. As an adult, one of the most thought-provoking series that I've ever read, and I know you've read it as well because we've talked about it for days, is Stephen King's Dark Tower. That book series is such an incredible journey, and it's one of those stories that when you start reading it, either you love it or you hate it. And if you love it, you're completely and totally invested in it until the final page. It just makes you think about life really long and really hard. And stories that do that invoke these changes within us that allow us to look at the world in a different way, even though we haven't physically gone out and experienced those events ourselves. But that's the really beautiful thing, is that the media we have access to changes us in the most fantastic ways if we allow it to. Even for me, the way I discovered ceremonial magic was through the Midnight Gospel, which is a cartoon. And I had been studying religion for two years at this point, but I had never come across the concept of ceremonial magic. And so finding it in a cartoon was kind of this very full circle moment for me because I have been steeped in books on religion, but I had never come across anything within this realm. And then here I am sitting in my living room and a show comes on and suddenly I'm learning stuff that is in my field of study, but it's not talked about. And it kind of caught me off guard, which then sent me down the rabbit hole. And I started doing research into all sorts of different books on ceremonial magic. And I started with The Lesser Key of Solomon, but it's a fairly advanced grimoire and it doesn't make a tremendous amount of sense. And that's literally the same with every book on magic when you start. It doesn't click until you start actively performing rituals. And once you do, there's this shift in perception and things that made no sense suddenly click into place. And that's similar to any endeavor under taken in life. The example I like to use is yoga. You can read all the books you want on yoga, but unless you do the stretches, you're still going to be stiff. And so you can fill yourself with as much knowledge as you want, but being an armchair magician isn't going to yield you those same results as if you were actively engaging with this practice. But I think that's one of the hardest things when starting with ceremonial magic is discerning what books should I start with. There's so many authors out there and it can be overwhelming, but as someone who's already gone through this process, I figured I'd make a short list of significant authors in the community, and we'll post links to their books in the description below. The first one is Lon Milo Duquette. He's a member of the OTO and an expert in all things Thelema. He is 
just a wonderful soul and he pumps out magic like there's no tomorrow. Every one of his books is an incredible starting point for a magician just to broaden their perspective on the realm of magic. One book of his in particular for someone to start with, it would be The Chicken Kabbalah. It breaks things down in a very understandable way and it's a great starting point. And this next magician gets a big shout out for me because he's the person who introduced me to ceremonial magic, and that is Damien Eccles. He's the founder of the forthcoming Magnum Opus School of Ceremonial Magic, and he is an absolute pillar in the community, and we're lucky to have him. Any one of his books is also a great starting point for the magician and actually a true starting point for the magician. His book, High Magic, breaks down the beginning rituals in a way that is understandable to anyone. That is the book that started me down this path. And so I can't recommend High Magic enough. Damien, if you're listening to this, thank you for being you. This next person is a witch who I actually discovered through Damien, and that is Matt Oren. He's a high priest of the Sacred Fires tradition of witchcraft and author of Psychic Witch. The book is just a series of exercises to help build psychic perception. And when I say psychic perception, what I mean is your ability to perceive energy on a subtler level than you do in your normal day-to-day survival instincts that we operate under. To kind of flesh this out, I think a Rudolf Steiner quote fits in perfectly here and it goes just as in body eye and ear develop as organs of perception as senses for bodily processes so does a man develop in himself soul and spiritual organs of perception through which the soul and spiritual worlds are open to him for those who do not have such higher senses these worlds are dark and silent just as the bodily world is dark and silent for a being without eyes and ears and i think that quote illustrates things so perfectly because when you start engaging with magic, this isn't the kind of thing that's just going to open itself up to you. You have to make an effort to engage with it for you to see some results. It's not just going to manifest itself. You have to put in time and dedication and effort to building these senses of perception that are you're, you're unfamiliar with working with. And that's what Matt Oren's book is designed to do. It gives you exercises to help build this psychic perception. And ceremonial magic is just one of the ways of seeing and interacting with energy. And Max, I know that you deal with energy on a daily basis. And the way that you interact with energy is very different from how I interact with energy, but it's not dissimilar. Yeah, actually, I think a lot of people would look at what I do and not realize that it's energy work, but it very much is. And I think that it is this form of energy work that is taught to a human being in a way that makes it very attainable. But then there's a sense of secrecy behind it Because the actual perception and the awareness that you need to develop in order to perceive and interact with this energy in a conscious manner, it's not open knowledge. And for everyone who's curious, what Tom is talking about when he says that I work with energy is I'm a martial artist. In particular, I am a swordsman. I mentioned this before that that's my spiritual practice. And a lot of people might not make that connection at first, but it is definitely energy work. And the reason being is because when you get to a certain level of awareness and perception in any art, you start to perceive the energy in it. And you might not be as conscious of this as somebody who is actively doing it, knowing what is happening, but you're still doing it. One of the ways that I refer to it in a lot of cases is flow. And, you know, funny enough, 
I'm actually going to put a little a, a little example in here because I think it, it conceptualizes it well. If any of you guys have seen that really cute Disney movie called Soul, they talk about flow in there. And honestly, it is such an accurate representation of what I would say that flow is. I just see it in a bit of a different color, um, quite literally speaking. So for me, when you are practicing, whether it be dancing, martial arts, any activity that involves your body and has to align your consciousness and your energy and your spirit with it, quite literally, you need to have spirit in order to do it. It's a form of energy work, but only once you get to a certain level. In the beginning, it's not because I think a lot of it has to do with really opening up these senses of perception, just like Tom mentioned, is talked about in Psychic Wish. And I think it's great that, you know, he speaks of it from a really fundamental, like, step one point of view, because those are the hardest steps, if you ask me. And as a swordsman, I actually believe that the level of energy perception comes much, much later in the practice. When you first get involved with it, you actually go through a lot of physical practices and physical trainings, and you do that for, at times, years, maybe even decades before you start to get to the level of being able to perceive it as energy work and interact with it as such. And one of the main reasons for that is due to the fact that the energy work side of being a swordsman, it's kind of secret. It's heralded as a really far off form of attainment. And personally, I actually think that that's the wrong way to look at it. I think that the sooner you're able to start to interact and pursue that level of being a swordsman and following the way of the sword on a spiritual level, the more substance that you're going to get from it in the long run when you've grown practicing this for so many years. And thankfully, I'd like to actually pay tribute to the fact that I've always really worked on a level of acquiring hyper awareness, the fact that I can interact with media that really puts that level of swordsmanship in my face and makes me hunger for it in an almost inhuman way. So I want to obviously obtain it much faster than they tell me that I can in all the literature and all the practices. But I can tangent on this all day. I am super passionate about the way of the sword, samurai culture, martial arts, the heart of the warrior. This is this is a lot of what makes me me, but it is my form of energy. I don't go a single day without at least having my sword in my hand. And once it's in my hand, I mean, you might as well go and train with it for a little bit. It puts me in a state where I start to connect with my higher self. And I start to invoke my true energy that is within me, that is my spirit. And it comes out in this form of practice that I refer to as flow. Um, funny enough, just a quick little point I want to mention here. I ended up speaking with a professional dancer at one point and I was watching her dance and I just noticed there was a look in her eyes and there was such a smoothness to her movements that I actually picked up that she was going through flow. And I mentioned it to her. I said, hey, you're flowing, aren't you? And she turned and looked at me with these really big, bright eyes because she'd never heard it brought about that way. And she probably hasn't met a lot of people who picked up on it in the moment, but she was 100% in a state of flow. And knowing that someone like me, who's also experienced it, was probably just such a significant moment for her. I know it would have been for me if I was in a state of flow and someone said, hey, you're doing it, you're in the state. I would have just been blown away. And this speaks to the value of these practices as well. You can have beliefs. You can have religion. You can have a background that stems from hundreds of generations of a really strong bloodline. But at the end of the day, you need to have a practice that allows you to really bring out your true self. And if you're able to do that, then you're truly existing because everything in existence is energy. And when you're able to not just perceive, but also become and invoke the side of you that is energy, the world completely changes.
you'll never look at it the same way. And isn't that the truth? You know, when you talk about energy and energy work, a lot of people who aren't familiar with these concepts are very apprehensive and almost resistant to it. But to break it down, literally everything in existence is energy. The entirety of the universe operates on a principle of inertia and movement. From galaxies down to atoms, all things are moving, and in that movement is energy. Ceremonial magicians, as I mentioned earlier, situate themselves in alignment with this energy because our consciousness allows us to navigate and interact with the natural world, and the magician's goal is to become completely sovereign over themselves. Every man and every woman is a star, and it's only a matter of remembering this fact, and in doing so, the nature of the reality we live in begins to unfold before the magician. And unfold before you. Each and every person who's listening to this, this could be your starting point, or maybe a milestone. But regardless of the fact, the entirety of existence lies before each and every one of us. So let's make the most of it. And I feel like this is a fantastic point to wrap up on, because every end should start with a beginning. Yeah, I agree. And though I barely scratched the surface of what magic is, I'm sure I've given you and everyone listening a few things to think about. Oh yeah, more than a few things in my personal opinion. Um, Just to share my final thoughts on everything, I feel like magic magic is one of those things that whether or not you want to identify and become involved with on a really inner circle level of being a ceremonial magician, that there are so many elements of it and so much spiritual substance that can be applied to everyday life among everyday people. Because it touches on existing in the universe from a very fundamental and essential point of view. And that's significant. So I would leave everybody who's listening to this with the same outlook that I have on magic. I am not a ceremonial magician, but I know there's so much value in the practice and in the beliefs that I look at points of it and I apply them to myself and they assist with my own spiritual development. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about everything in detail and even offer a lot of points of introduction for people who are quite interested in learning a little bit more about it because it's going to give people an opportunity to go and just learn more about the spirit and the spiritual self. That's really valuable. So thank you, Tom. I know that this is a this is a really passionate topic for you. And I'm sure that you put a lot of effort into putting everything together. So yeah, I just want to say thanks to you and tell everybody who's listening. If you have any questions on this, you should reach out to Tom. He's uh, he's a really awesome guy to talk to. You could you could take it from me. I talk to this guy like every single day. <laughs> so connect with him and reach out to him. I'm sure if you had any questions about anything that you heard of in the podcast or anything you read about in the books. He would be a great guy to go to with those questions. But in the spirit of wrapping up any form of content that you put out on the internet, just want to thank everybody who has been listening. You guys are great. I know that uh, this is episode three. So for those of you who've been here since the beginning, I really appreciate the support. If you're listening to this on YouTube, make sure that you like and subscribe. It does help us a lot. If you're listening to this on any other platform, whether it be Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, follow the podcast and, you know, give us a rating or a review or reach out to us and let us know how we're doing. If you have any suggestions or maybe you want to chat about something, get in touch with us because we're going to continue putting these out. And uh, yeah, with that, thank you, everybody. Really appreciate it. Until next time. Abra Hadabra. The podcast is now closed.